uh today's medium talk is with juliet shore who is the author of after the gig how the sharing economy got hijacked and how to win it back it's a great book that talks about the gig economy you know these apps that we're out here looking at you know so many of us have um used them you know uber lyft airbnb all these things um and it's a very comprehensive breakdown of one the marketing of these ideas the execution of these ideas the pitfalls of these ideas the exploitation of these ideas and also some alternative ideas to uh, how to fix it and the effect that it's had on the economy on people's like personal experiences um and the results of, of that so uh we had a very comprehensive fun discussion uh about uh some of the different um uh collectives in the book some of the different ideas like uh we <laughs> we talked about the <laughs> this uh food sharing collective and the snobbery that ruined it and the impracticality of some of the maker spaces and things of that nature uh it was a very informative funny discussion i can't recommend the book highly enough uh i i suggest if you enjoyed our conversation you go and check out the book after the gig um by juliet b shore uh i'll put a link in the show notes um so uh yeah without further ado let's actually get into this conversation and uh thank you for listening Juliet Shore, nice to uh, meet you um, after uh, reading your work, uh, after the gig. Um, and uh, I, first thing I want to ask is, how did you come up with the concept of the book? Is it like germane to uh, your expertise already or something you were, you know, because it sounds like this was a lot of research. Like, <laughs> like you had a, like teams of people working on this. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the just like the appendix is half the book so <laughs> like like how do you even come want to tackle something so big as the gig economy yeah um and i did have a great team all of my graduate students i had a team of like eight eight or more people working on it so back in at the uh, time of the financial crisis and the so-called great recession I was finishing up a book called Plenitude, The New Economics of True Wealth. And it was really designed to sort of think about how we as a society could address both economic inequality and all the stagnation, recession, unemployment, and the climate crisis at the same time. And it was really just geared to households, individuals, um, it didn't seem like the government was going to be doing coming along to help us anytime soon. So I developed this plenitude model, which was about how people could do less work in the corporate sector, do more uh, so-called self-provisioning or DIY, barter, more community-based um, activity, localize. And just as I was writing this, this so-called thing called the sharing economy was a, it wasn't called that yet actually but it was starting to be born and by this i mean both community sharing like tool libraries repair cafes food swaps maker spaces but also there were these commercial entities like 
ride sharing, that's what it was called then, Airbnb, that people could use to earn some money to make it possible for them to live without these like stressful corporate jobs or for people who couldn't get those jobs. Right. So that's what got me interested in it. And um, when I finished that book, I got a grant from the MacArthur Foundation to start studying these. We were really interested in whether young people would be able to create new pathways to livelihoods mm. other than just, you know, the corporate default. And so we began studying. We studied the nonprofits. We studied the for-profits, Airbnb, delivery uh, apps. Uh, we studied Uber and Lyft. We studied TaskRabbit, which is like an errands platform. We studied something called Turo, which is where you Airbnb your car. Yeah, and you sound like um, you kind of are a true believer in some of it. Like, obviously not the execution of um, some of the for-profit stuff, but like some of these ideas, right? Because we like we need to like decrease our carbon footprint uh, on the earth, like to live. Uh, so like um, the idea of community sharing and stuff, like the impetus of these ideas at least, or the core values of them, it seems like, like, cause I felt like you're still kind of rooting for it as opposed to like, this is all BS. We're, we're out of here. Don't, don't believe in any of this stuff. If so, did you have any experience with that coming up? Like communal sharing and, and, uh, some of the, like I said, underpinnings of what they base the share economy on? Yeah, absolutely. I am still a believer in all this and I'm, I'm a believer for in sort of two parts of it. One is, the technological, because these technologies actually are pretty amazing. They make a lot of new uh, social relations possible. So the idea of a person-to-person -person economy, um, where you don't have to go through a, a middleman, for example, where the worker can take a much greater fraction of the value that they produce. So um, that's one thing where a lot of the functions of management are taken over by the algorithms and the rating systems and so forth. And then the question is like, can we put that to work for ordinary people and not just the, you know, the fat cats who invested in Uber and Airbnb? And I think the answer is yes. And there are a lot of really cool applications that people are using, whether it's food donation programs. So, um, there are apps where uh, restaurants or groceries, if they have too much food, uh, they post it and then volunteers come along and they take it and they, you know, the people who need it are also on the app and they deliver it to them. And the, as I said, you know, the repair cafe, so you don't have to buy something new every time something breaks. Um, the time banks where people are trading services. Um, so even if you don't have money, you can get access to things as long as, you're willing to contribute some of your time to do what you can, you know, what you know how to do. Um, so all of these things are great. We have, we studied these nonprofits, food swaps and the maker spaces. And uh, especially, you know, I live in Boston where there are a lot of really highly educated, you might say some of us overeducated folks, um, where a lot of these initiatives didn't get beyond that demographic. Um, also very white, um, but they they work well in other contexts or if you start them differently with a more diverse group of people from the beginning. So that, that was one of the issues that we found with the nonprofits. Um, 
And, you know, we can talk a lot more about that. But there are versions of this that are going on, you know, around the country, not just in communities like the ones we studied, but also in um, black communities, low income communities, diverse communities like Cooperation Jackson. Uh, you're in the South, so you, mm. you, you, you know, I'm sure you know about them, but just where these principles of doing things in ways that everyone's included, everyone's skills are valued, um, more solidarity, more community. We're going to have to go that way if we're going to survive as a species. That's what I think. Yeah, and I mean, and the thing is, as a black person, it is intriguing, right? Because some of the technological um, alternatives were alternatives to things that were worse to me. Like, so maybe Uber has some issues with race and there I may be declined or have a ride canceled. Is it still better than the reputation a taxi has for me? Yes. So it's like, which one of these things is closer to being fixed? It's like, I do kind of hope that they find a way to like fix ride sharing more so than, uh, I think they can fix the institutionalized problems of like taxis. Um, um, and you know, you would hope almost that the competition between the two would make taxis be better. Right. But, um, so yeah there's there's stuff like that in the book that i thought was so interesting the other thing i thought was so interesting is um you kind of start the whole uh upfrontness of theme throughout everything but uh how much marketing is about the progressive values that people have but then kind of underneath the surface and you know the the iceberg part of the iceberg not the tip is a lot of just kind of corporate greed a lot of like rampant capitalism and uh you know a lot of like uh lobbying against laws that protect workers and things of this nature um how much of that do you believe was like by design or how much and how much do you think was just kind of like happenstance you know um like we they did set out to kind of do these things and it just at some point it's like oh i'm a billionaire and <laughs> and how much of it was like no 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 we're gonna tell people we want to do this but we're not planning on doing that we want to get rich yeah, that's a great question. Um, so almost all the companies in the, the, if we're talking about the, you know, the for profits, almost all of the companies in the quote unquote sharing economy came out with this discourse of common good. Like we're going to provide economic benefit for people. We're going to be more inclusive. We're going to be fairer. We don't discriminate. We're going to help people connect with each other and build friendships and social ties, and we're going to reduce carbon footprints. There's one exception. That's Uber. I'll get to them in a minute. But if you take Airbnb, Airbnb, there's so much about cultural, you know, interaction and, you know, that you're sharing your home and fighting middle class income squeeze. Um, If you take Lyft, Lyft's such an interesting case. They... Found it was founded. Um, one of the founders was in uh, Zambia, I think, and saw the way these sort of jitneys worked, where it'd be like vans that would be driving along, and anybody could hop on or hop off. Very ecological. And oh, no, it was Zimbabwe. That's it. And that's where the uh, it was originally called Zimride. Mm. That was his um, his uh, inspiration for starting it. Um, and then couch surfing, which is a free service, Airbnb, like, but you don't have to pay. 
So they all started with the belief that they were really going to do a lot of good in the world. And I think most of the people believed it. There's one interesting paper by someone who interviewed employees of all these platforms uh, in San Francisco back in the early days. And what he found was that they all, you know, had drunk the Kool-Aid to a certain extent about this do-gooder stuff. Uh, but they also all saw a little bit the contradictions that were starting. And they, they would mostly point to Uber and say, but at least we're not like Uber. <laughs> so I said, I'll, I mentioned Uber's different because Uber was started by somebody with an extreme conservative free market ideology mm. saying, okay, yeah, we're going to do some good things, but very, you know, a very different, uh, very different mentality than the rest of these, which tended to be more progressive. Um, I mean, the, the philosophy of Travis Kalanick, who was the Uber founder, is, is horrible. Mm. And, you know, he very early on was doing basically um, uh, picked up the Koch brothers playbook to destroy the taxi industry. You know, so he's a bad egg. I mean, he mm. got pushed out because he, he was even too bad a, an egg for his company. The company's still doing a lot of really awful mm. stuff, but... They And they, by the way, are the one company that never said they were part of the sharing economy. They never defined wow. that themselves that way, even though, you know, most of the press, when they would be writing these stories about the sharing economy, it was, economy, it was Uber, Airbnb, and Lyft. Right. And it's also interesting, too, because, like you said, they became the model, right? Like, so many companies were like, we want to be the Uber of blank, but then their, you know, supposed politics and, and promotion is the exact opposite of that. It's, we want to empower the people on our platform. We want to enable people to have better experiences when they travel or when they eat or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Maybe they've just met the ubiquitousness of Uber. Like, we just want to be known as that big. But, yeah, the, the model of Uber is very much, uh, yeah, it's very much like uh, survival of the fittest almost. Um the other thing you brought up too was class in this a lot um and how uh at least from a lot of studies y'all you, you, did it was like um college educated middle class people that did a lot of this labor even when the labor was you know quote unquote what we believe to be beneath people that have gone to college and like oh you're you're in you're you have a doctorate and you drive uber like you're not supposed to do that what do you think was the impetus behind that level of labor becoming like acceptable almost for these people to be doing? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things. One is a lot of the people who got into this in the early days were young. It was almost mm. all young people. And, and since these, these platforms were founded 2008, 2009, they were people graduating from college into uh, a world where there were no jobs. So that's part of, in part, it was necessity for some of them. But the other thing was the platforms really destigmatized the work. Mm. They had this uh, ethic of, you know, like it's technologically advanced, it's novel, it's hip, it's cool. In the book, I talk about a, um, a video for one of these online uh it was just like a task site, sort of like TaskRabbit. It was called Zarly. It, it didn't make it, but 
it was like um, a video of a woman in her apartment, and then all these cool people start coming, like this black DJ comes, and, you know, super multicultural and hip, and and it's like, oh, if you do Zarly, you're going to be in this cool, hip, multicultural world. And that, that I think, really helped to get people uh, doing it. But what's interesting is over time, and especially more and more of this evidence has come out in the, just in the last couple of years, um, when you look at what's happened in a couple of the big uh, sectors. So ride hail's the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um, food delivery is another big one. That workforce has really changed from the days when we started studying this. Um, it's gotten much more immigrant. It's gotten much less educated. From In the beginning, like, the huge percentage of all these people had college degrees. Right. Um, and the same for the food delivery. Like, you know, partly it's differences in Boston and other cities. We just uh, – there was just a study in San Francisco – of food delivery workers and not many of them were, you know, white, maybe like 20% or something. Mm. Um, now it's, that's a more, you know, much more racially diverse or ethnically right. diverse city than Boston. But, you know, we found a lot of uh, college students and recent college grads and stuff doing that work. So as the companies have really squeezed the workers and the, the wages went down and the business got hard, it harder, got harder and harder to get the jobs you've seen the uh, composition of that workforce move toward a sort of less educated, uh, less white workforce, people who have fewer options, whereas, you know, higher educated people have higher options, uh, more options, and they sort of, they move out when things start to get really not so great. It also makes sense, too, because you would think earlier, one, to, to hear about it earlier and to be an early adopter you know it's kind of a privilege um and then also like to have to buy into the political type of um promotion of it to have those politics is kind of a privilege in america to be able to sit back and be like yeah i want to share my car with people you know it's like when like when i got my first car and i was like uh like a 16 year old i was just like this is the first thing that's mine like so i'm definitely not driving like i might drive my friend somewhere if they're really nice but uh yeah but but to think about who would be into that marketing you know it would be somebody that you know felt a need to share whether through guilt or just like these progressive values that they uh hold um another thing that that you just brought up and it kind of ties into the book which is so interesting the profit is kind of the thing that uh allure like the 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 idea of making money is going to be a thing that's going to attract black and brown people immigrants lower class people things of this nature um but then when you brought up the non-profit because i was like okay this is where like it's going to be more quote-unquote right but then the more the non-profit had their own failings i think the um my favorite like it actually made me laugh out loud i know this book is not supposed to be like a funny book but it was funny to me but the food sharing collective and like the failures of and like the snobbery of it oh my god can you just kind of talk about that a little bit because it was honestly the best part of the book to me oh yeah thanks that's what my family thought too (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so 
yeah, it was really interesting in these organizations that were started like to do good in the world. And the people are really genuine. They, they, they do want to do good things. The food swap was started by three young professionals. I mean, the main person was a African American single woman lawyer and she had a farm share. And it was just more than she could handle. And so she thought, well, look, why don't I make stuff with all the corn I'm getting or whatever it was, and then we can swap it out once a month. But the the founders and the, the, the sort of the core group of the food swap were really snobby about what they would trade. So they're like, oh, you brought it in a Ziploc bag? Forget it. You had to have those mason jars, you know, they're like, that everybody started drinking out of, and you know, they kept showing up at weddings and things in a certain era. So, uh, or, I, I mean, the funny, that funny quote is probably the one that made you laugh out loud, is uh, someone who just, first-timers, the first-timers, you know, never expected all this snobbery, right? And they they could have easily written on the website, like, don't do this and don't do that, but they they didn't do that. So somebody had made Oreo truffles, and everything's handmade. And so one of the uh, founders, like, oh, Oreo truffles, those look so nice. Um, are they made from real Oreos? And, of course, the person thought that that was going to be like a positive. So they said, yeah, you know, I made them from Oreos. And, and, and then the woman was like, oh, well, then I couldn't possibly eat them, you know, <laughs> because they have all those chemicals in them. And so it was – it, and it failed. It just – people stopped coming. And there were a lot – every month there would be new people, but they'd never, they wouldn't come back because these people were just kind of they had that crunchy granola alternative thing but they also had that like nose up in the air food snobbery thing and it just it didn't work i also like like i think what made i mean that made me laugh too but i think it was the one where an older lady came and then like she also felt social ostracization oh, because yeah no one talked to her because it's like it just reminded me of like children with show and tell or something yeah. where it's like legos everyone has legos oh god this guy's not cool oh yeah man. she brought vanilla cupcakes with vanilla icing and people are like <laughs> what you know they wanted their lime marmalade and urban pistachio urban crusted tofu you know whatever it was and it's just so far from what they started it to to be you know um which i think is just kind of a human element right you started with these values in mind and this high-mindedness and it it breaks down into like i don't i can't eat another brownie we could have made brownies at home and now you're just recreating uh what's already exist yeah, I mean, because it was supposed to be take back your pantries for urban populations who didn't have access to fresh, healthy food to bring uh, healthy food to them and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, another thing you brought up was I believe you had to change the name of industry in the book um, to yeah. protect the, uh, the, uh, the the whatever company it was. But um, uh, can you talk about industry and the impracticality of some of the things they worked on and how that kind of became the point of what they were doing? Yeah. So this is, uh, we call it make industry in the book. It's one of the biggest makerspaces in the country. I mean, it was a huge success. 
in certain ways. After it was founded, it grew rapidly. It has all kinds of machinery, high-tech making, low-tech welding, woodworking, laser cutting, 3D wow. printing, all of that. Um, robotics. Uh, and, oh, I'm sorry. Can you tell people what a makerspace is? I'm sorry. Anika. Oh, yeah, sure. A makerspace is a, a central, like a place that has a whole bunch of tools mm. that that are either owned in a community makerspace like this one. They were owned by a nonprofit. There's also something called tech space, which is a, like a for-profit chain of makerspaces. But so you don't have to have the tools yourself or know people who have them. You can go to these places. Usually there's a membership component um or a lot of them give rscape uh had classes that you can uh, you know sign up for the classes and so forth so what we found was if you think about it this could be really valuable for a lot of people because you could repair things you could make things there's a lot of expertise there you could learn how to do all this stuff but we did have one guy in our research who's uh his family, had, I think there was a fire at their house or a flood or something, and he was repairing his parents' furniture and everything. So just like a, a kind of normal thing to do. At the space, someone like that was called a normie. Mm. Okay. A normal person was called a normie, which meant they were like a weird thing, right? <laughs> right, right. Because most of the people were involved in making the, the whole point of the making was like, how weird, exotic, esoteric, impractical could you be? Wow. And so they do a lot of single-use making. So a bike collective, they build these bikes, they use them once, they tear them down. A robot competition. They'd spend weeks building robots, which is cool, you right. know, totally cool. They'd have a competition. The robots would kill each other in the competition, and they that was the end of it. You know, so it was like um, – or they would just get sort of do things that would be just as weird as possible. Right. Um, the, the robotics group built this giant robot. It was an eight foot uh, hexapod. So six legged robot. There wasn't even any way to get it out of the space. It was so big. They mm. spent huge amounts of time and money building this to to what purpose and as the these folks would say when we'd interview them you know why are you doing that because i can mm. you know and so it was totally white place right located in the middle of a very ethnically diverse neighborhood <laughs> but i don't think we saw one african-american person there right. you know the whole time it, it was just and, and they didn't they didn't get how the culture they created, which they thought was just so cool, you know, right. because it was an alternative culture. They didn't get the ways in which it was just, it exuded so much privilege and so much whiteness and also maleness. I mean, there right. were women there, but men really dominated the space. Um, there, there was like a so, beer, there was like a beer economy too, right? Where they like, like yeah we, i'm gonna buy you a pack of beer we're gonna you know drink some beer and, and beer is very like gendered in uh society already yeah exactly so the beer economy so the the like what we found was there was a group of people there who kind of really came to socially dominate like a very high status group even though all of the ethic of the place was egalitarian community we're all part of the same community everybody's equal but these these certain group and they would help each other with their projects um for beer 
They wouldn't take money from each other because they were all part of this elite there. So like, uh, you know, who would, they'd have a listserv and it's like, oh, I need such and such. It'd be all this technical stuff, you know, uh, you know, whoever can help me. I have a case of your favorite beer waiting or something. Um, for the normies, you'd have to pay money. Like you'd either have to take a class or you, you know, if you wanted to get help from one of these people, you'd have to, you know, wow. pay them for their time. So it was a really elite, the beer economy was, was male, but also was very elitist because you had to get accepted into it. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't trade for beer with everybody. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think, um, without thinking about it, because that's the other thing, like the group of people that are mostly in this book that, uh, the white people are the good white people. You know, if you had to like make a, a list of a chart, you know, I would put them in the like good category of like, oh no, they care about the earth and other people and stuff. But I think it is hard to, when you have a society that, that deals with racism and, uh, sexism, all this stuff, it's kind of hard to create something outside of that society unless you're very intentional. And so without the intentionality of being like, we're going to make this space diverse. We're going to make it inclusive. We're going to make it practical. You do end up making eight foot, uh, robots or whatever, uh, and, and trading beer. And, and, uh, I thought it was interesting in one of those interviews where the, the, the guy was like, Oh no, we just don't even really care about that stuff. And you're like, well, he belongs to all the groups, uh, that are kind of benefiting from not caring about this. So I thought that was, uh, also yeah. interesting. Now, can you explain what exactly the time swap is? Like, uh, cause I, I, like, I know a time, like it seemed, and maybe it's just because it's so abstract to me, but it's these people sign up to be like, okay, I'm a lawyer, you're a janitor, you work an hour for me, I work an hour for you, and that's that's the idea, I guess, on this, you know, not how it worked out, but that's the basic idea? Yeah. So they're called time banks. They were actually started long before the sharing economy um, as a way of, of uh, responding to unemployed people who didn't have access to cash mm. to create a new kind of economy that would allow them to contribute the skills that they do and the time that they do have and to get stuff in return that they didn't need cash for. So it's um, you join a time bank and you, you, you put up your profile and you list the kinds of things that you're willing to do or, you know, that you can do um, whether it's being a lawyer driving somebody places, doing gardening, baking, childcare, plumbing, whatever it is. And then you, uh, and then you look to see what other people have that you need mm. and you arrange trades. And it's a bank because like if I, let's say I wanted some lessons from you and how to do a podcast uh, you wouldn't need something that I have. So I could get my, I could get two hours of your time. Um, and let's say you needed, um, gardening, which I don't know how to do. You could get gardening from somebody else. Oh, okay. So, like when, when you give me two hours, you get two hours of credit in your bank account. Okay. Okay. What we call a multilateral barter system. So no money, just time credits. And the fact that everyone's hour is equal was very much the foundation, the, the sort of ideology of the time bank. But what we found, and it's, it's a great ideology, it's really important, but what we found is that it was really hard for a lot of people, even though they thought they believed in that, 
they would say things and they'd often um, figure it out when we were interviewing them. They'd say, well, I don't offer this in the time bank because it's worth more. Like people who were, and, and, you know, people for whom it was their professional uh, identity, you can understand that. Right. They don't want to trade something that they are hoping to sell on the market for $75 an hour for something, you know, that's worth 15. But the whole, the point of the time bank was to break down those big differences in the wages in part. But but it also meant that there were too many people offering stuff that didn't cost that much, and it was hard to get some of the high-value stuff. But, you know, it was actually even worse than that. Mm. It was that we found a lot of the people with very ex- uh, valuable skills, things that they could charge a lot for in the market, like coding, you know, a lot of the software skills um, that people need. Like, people really need that stuff, and it's expensive. They didn't want to do that in the time bank because they spend all day doing it. So they wanted to install thermostats or do gardening or, so there was a shortage of some of those high paid skills. There's also a big shortage of blue collar skills. Right. And it's interesting because it can't really work the other way, right? I can't be like, you know what? I'm a janitor most of the day. I'm tired of being a janitor for an hour a day. I will be a lawyer, right? Like, No, no one would, would accept that trade. So yeah, I thought that was interesting too. in the solution of kind of like maybe adjusting to like the ratio and, and they still kind of didn't like that at the end because, uh, you know, it kind of violates the, the idea, but you're right. The, the idea is so revolutionary that you almost have to separate it from society. You can't like, if we live in a world where a lawyer gets $250 an hour, it's just very hard to convince that person to trade it for $15 an hour services. Um, it's like the exact opposite reason they went to school and did all that stuff. Um, (laughs) um, another thing, um, like, obviously I think it's been kind of well researched and talked about like the exploitative nature of, um, the gig economy, especially like Uber, uh, some of the damage that Airbnb has done to like, uh, neighborhoods and, and communities and whatnot. But, near the end you kind of talk about how much um other countries have have regulated um been sort of aggressive sometimes even banned these things why do you think other countries were able to like see this coming and and like kind of get ahead of it or you know nip it in the bud or push back to some extent uh when america seems kind of mostly like um i don't know almost like it caught off guard or or just not prepared for this at all and and lets it run amok yeah it's a great question um i would say most people would think and and i think this is a big part of the answer is in the countries where you've seen the effect of regulation are countries which have pretty strong labor unions and strong governments in, in relationship to business. Mm. So in Sweden, for example, when Uber came in, immediately they were forced to follow all the laws. And they actually operate a lot like the regular taxi system there. Germany, they banned it. There are a number of countries where it's been banned. Um, there's still fights going on in London, for example. Big fights with Uber. They keep getting deactivated and then trying to get back in and, and so forth. Um, on the other hand, you have countries around the world where things are even way worse than they are here, mm-hmm. uh, much less protection, where 
these platforms are operating in, in really predatory ways where you have like subcontractors who are really exploiting people or they're, they're, um, uh, at least for example, Uber had uh, early days. It promised you could make $90,000 a year as a, as a driver. I mean, it was total BS, but right. the, the government finally came in and fined them and forced them to take it back and so forth. You've got, you've got a lot of predatory marketing practices going on. Um, I heard from someone who's studying Uber in Nairobi. Um, I have a friend who's studying in uh, global South countries, uh, cities around the world. And some of the stories that are coming out from there, those places in terms of the um, treatment of the drivers are really bad. There, there's also something that hasn't happened so much in the United States, but uh, this is actually a European problem where people, uh, documented residents or citizens will set up accounts and then they'll basically subcontract those accounts to undocumented immigrants mm. who can't get on the platforms in Europe. Here you can get on if you're undocumented much more easily. And, um, uh, and then they'll just, uh, you know, exploit the hell out, the heck out of them. Wow. Um, so, I think that, you know, sort of how strong is labor, how strong is the state is really key. The one good thing I would say is beginning in 2008, you start to see some regulation coming in the United States. So um, the Taxi and Limousine Commission in New York puts in a, a minimum wage for ride hail drivers and a vehicle cap. Seattle is considering that now. You've got Airbnb regulations that have come in in, in a number of the major cities. So uh, we don't know how COVID is going to affect this. There really was momentum starting in 2018 to try and push back because the the companies had just been so successful in stopping at all kinds of regulation. But eventually the problems just became so obvious and so severe that even in this like super business friendly environment, uh, some cities and, and even the state of California decided to take some action. Yeah. I, I thought that was interesting because so like, I didn't even know that they were so good at lobbying and uh, getting these like preemptive, um, like striking down stuff before it could even become ish. So it's like, listen, when we come in, boom, we're going to run everything and we will have already smooth greased all the wheels. So it was like, this is such a major undertaking, but it's also kind of, you can see why it's so successful. They kind of thought of everything, uh, <laughs> so far. Um, the other, the, before we get out of here, the last thing I wanted to ask, cause I, I, I feel like the book still does end on like, I feel like we've been talking about pessimism for like 48 minutes, but, uh, the book kind of ends on like, um, the idea that there's still hope here, right? This is not like, we're doomed the technology has failed us uh back you know back to the middle dark ages um what is it that makes you feel like you know like what what companies or what uh apps or what ideas what community spaces are giving you kind of like hope you know what countries are giving you like okay there's there's a place where we can find balance in this yeah i and it's true i do feel optimistic uh despite you know, the subtitle of the book is how the sharing economy got hijacked, but yeah. then, and how to win it back. I mean, I do believe we can. And it's, you know, it's partly the technology makes a lot of new 
social relations possible and like super efficient. I think that's the thing. So let me give the example. I, I studied the, I did the first academic study of what's called a platform cooperative, which is a worker owned co-op on one of these platforms. So instead of having Uber uh, investors and shareholders, now shareholders owning the platform and extracting all that value from it, the workers own it. Mm. And it's really, it's, you know, I I think it's a really great uh, idea because the technology just makes it so much easier to get to, to do without management. So here's, here's the example that I started with some quite a few years ago. And when I started thinking about these platform co-ops, why are they, what can they do? Let's think about a home health care aid. So this is a notoriously exploitative industry where the worker does a lot of hard work and really doesn't get that much money. Mm-hmm. And they get for the private, the private client sector, they get hired through agencies mm-hmm. and the cut, the clients, the families hire through the agencies because they want to be, they, you know, they want people who are trustworthy that, they're, you know, they're inviting someone into their home to take care of, of a, a sick person, et cetera. So that that quality control and that, you know, kind of ensuring that the person is who they say they are and so forth is really important. The agencies take half the money. Wow. They take half the money, okay, in a lot of cases. So now you have a platform that has a system for collecting information about a person. They've got a rating, they've got reputation. You can find out from all the other clients who who they worked for, how good they are and so forth. You don't need the agency. Right. You just need the platform. And so that other half of all that money, some of it could go to the customer, it could go to the worker. The technology allows you to get rid of that middleman. That was one of the big ideas from the early days. More value to the, to the, the, you know, the users. So that's what a platform cooperative allows you to do, which is like to get rid of a lot of those layers of management and that, that, those, that investor class, because now these platforms are pretty easy to set up. The technology is widely available. It's not that expensive. It's not like in the early days when, you know, only, you know, just a few companies knew how to do it. So, and they're not all as complicated as a logistics or delivery company where you're just talking about labor exchanges. You know, you don't need all the mapping logistics, you know, the algorithms aren't that complicated. So, that's why I feel optimistic. The platform co-op we studied was super successful. The artists loved it. Um, it was making a lot of money. Uh, they got way more money than when they sold on the, uh, you know, the, the standard platforms. Mm. And, um, there, there are, uh, cleaning co-ops that have started now, bicycle courier co-ops, drivers, you know, ride hail co-ops. Healthcare. There's a big, huge freelancers co-op in Europe. Um, so it, it's actually an idea that a lot of them are, are starting. There's something called Fair B&B, which is a cooperative alternative to Airbnb that reinvests in the communities where the wow. uh, housing is located. So I think that's the way to go. I mean, they've got a they've got to compete with these giant companies, but you know, Uber and Lyft have been just losing. 
world historic amounts of money. You know, right. maybe it's time to try something else. That was the other thing. I, I um, I, I, I didn't. I don't want to go over time, but I, that was the other thing. I just didn't understand the math of we're losing money, and then also the people who run it are billionaires. You know, it's like I don't know. Just mathematically, it just doesn't seem to make sense that you know you could be a billionaire and be like, yeah, my company's in the red, and we've never made a profit, but I'm rich. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. And I I think I have five extra minutes. I hear okay. my husband still mowing the lawn before we have to leave. Um, we had one uh, one of the – somebody who's in the book, and someone we interviewed, who'd been at a startup. Mm. She was part of a startup, and then she was doing bicycle currying, courier. And she was saying how crazy the economics of the startups are because the um, – the investors are just pouring tons of money in. The investors have so much money. They pour it in. They know that nine out of 10 are going to fail, right? Mm. So they don't, they, but they don't know which one is going to succeed. So they pour the money in and they're basically willing to lose it. And that's what, and with, that's what goes on in the, at the beginning. And then if they really believe in an idea, they're willing to take those losses for a long time because they think eventually there's going to be a big pay day. You know, they look at Amazon. They mm. look at Google. These are things that in the early days lose money. And then Amazon took a long time to make money. And now, of course, it's like right. the most profitable, you know, business you could ever imagine. So with Uber, because Uber's the company that has lost by far the most money. With Uber, the idea, the profitability will come with Uber only if they can eliminate all the competition, or at least profitability on a big scale. Mm. And I, I talk about this in a book. In the book, they they subsidize every ride, and that's why a lot of people started taking ride hail because they were it was a lot cheaper than taxis in the early days. And and with the pooled services, they were they were pricing it as the same as a public transportation. So what would you rather do? Have a car come and pick you up wherever right. you are, take you to wherever you want to go, or get on a bus, a subway, take five times as long, same price. Okay? Right. Of course, people are gonna people are gonna take the ride hails. But once there is no public transportation, once there is no lift, once there's no other way to get around, you're going to be paying five times the price. That's the only way Uber gets profitable is when it jacks up those prices. A lot of that demand's going to go away right. because people are going to, they're not going to move around as much or they're going to get walk yeah, or get on you, the bike. Or, but that's what's happening is those right. investors believe in the company. But, you know, Uber was a, is a Ponzi scheme. Not right. a Ponzi scheme. What is it called? A, a bezel. It's like a total mm. fraud. And it was people were talking about a valuation of 120 billion, you know, and it's down to now, I don't know what, you know, less than 50, I think. But it's, you know, it's it's never made money. It's losing insane amounts of money. Mm. And in, it's, it's, it's interesting crazy by it. because in the book, you also like, you know, in these interviews, you're anticipating the thing because you, you know you've been studying this so you know people will be like well i'll do this type of deal and you're like okay but the changes that will happen because of this you have to think of that too like what about the people that buy more cars so it's actually not reducing the carbon footprint because there's a profit motive to having more cars you know like 
that kind of thing does seem to go out of the window because it doesn't fit the marketing so they just don't want to talk about it yeah so i zipcar was started by an ardent environmentalist she's a friend of mine and there were two two people who started it but uh she got eventually got pushed out of the company mm. and but it it's whole thing you know it has green marketing green color but also you know that you you don't have to buy a car anymore you can just get a zip car when you need one have you you've heard of zip car yes you have it yeah I, okay. I, i've heard of it yeah so it's a it's just a you could rent a car for an hour basically and right and they were located all around the city like i had a uh, one of my students had one parked in her driveway in the early days so they were very convenient they'd be in your neighborhood and so forth and the whole those women got into it for the purpose of reducing carbon footprints so people wouldn't buy cars etc hmm. uh some years later just by coincidence a friend of mine happened to be doing marketing you know re rebranding zipcar and you know he had access to all the data and what he said to them was you have to stop saying you're green because actually what you're doing is making it easier for people to use cars they're right. putting them on college campuses uh people are using them instead of public transportation they just made it much more ch- uh, cheaper and more convenient to rent a car yeah and it was the opposite of what it had hoped for yeah. and so they quietly dropped all of the green uh market you know they still have the green color but they they no longer made any claims because my friend said you're going to get creamed on this because it's very obvious it's not what you're doing yeah the airbnb with the we're, we're reducing travel we're you know it's less to travel and we're going to reduce the footprints like well if you make one more trip than you were going to make on a plane all of that is is gone so yeah uh anyway i love this book it was great um y'all did great work um and uh you know uh hopefully the people listening to us go out and read it i it was very eye-opening and the my favorite thing is that it doesn't really skirt away from any issues like um you know as a black person i'm always like how does race affect this thing you know because that's my lived experience and it's like in there it's like oh yes the 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 way that if you do airbnb people the price people pay to rent it out if you're if you want to be a host or 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 be a person that that, uh is a customer sometimes you get rejected and stuff and uh i just felt like it was a very holistic approach but uh, but not a pessimistic one just kind of like realistic and then hey here's some ideas we can look into so uh you did a masterful job juliet and uh thank you for your time uh today oh thank you it's really been a pleasure and and i'm so glad you liked the book yep uh hope you uh hope you sell a lot of them and uh that people start being a little bit more mindful with their uh uh their choices out here so thank you yeah thank you